Well, we'll begin with prayer. We'll bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for a day like this, a day of snow, and a day that we can gather together under your means of grace, learn more of your word, more of who you are. I do pray, Lord, as we look at the narrow day of the Lord, we'd help understand your scriptures, that we'd have clarity as to your promises. We ask that you'd use your promises to help us to persevere to that great day that you return for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last time we had talked about the broad day of the Lord, if you recall. And we talked about how the broad day of the Lord is a signless event. So if you look at my diagram here, remember the broad day of the Lord begins at the inception of the 70th week of Daniel. And it extends, as I mentioned last time, all the way really through eternity. It's an eternal day of the Lord because God's wrath is eternal and his salvation is eternal. That's how I think we should understand it. One of the evidences that I gave you of that, the fact that the broad day of the Lord is eternal, was found in 2 Peter 3, where Peter says, yes, the day of the Lord comes like a thief. That's the inception of it, the beginning. But it also incorporated, he said, the removal of the heavens and the earth. Remember, he says those things would be burned up. Well, that happens after the millennial kingdom. So he pushes that off into the eternal state. So for Peter, he certainly sees the day of the Lord as a broad period of time. Okay, so looking at that biblical data, we said, yes, the broad day of the Lord begins without warning. There is nothing to tip you off as to when it may occur. However, there is what I would refer to as the narrow day of the Lord. And I do believe the narrow day of the Lord is preceded by certain signs. So let me pull up my pointer and I'll show you where the narrow day of the Lord is. It's right here. At the very end of the 70th week of Daniel, where Jesus Christ returns to set his feet on the Mount of Olives and to fight against the enemies that have surrounded Jerusalem, that day is preceded by signs. Okay, that's the narrow day of the Lord. So what I want to show you is some evidence where the biblical writers, I think, do distinguish between the broad day of the Lord and the narrow day of the Lord. And so in so doing, let me lay out the biblical case for you. I want to begin in the book of Malachi. So if you'll turn your Bibles to Malachi 4, verses 5 through 6. Many of you have heard this passage in the New Testament. Malachi 4, verses 5 through 6. This is the famous promise that Elijah would come first to restore all things prior to the great and terrible day of the Lord. So please turn your Bibles there, Malachi 4, 5 through 6. Malachi 4, 5 through 6, the prophet Malachi said, Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of Yahweh, or the Lord. So let's just stop there in verse 5 for just a moment. Notice there is something that does precede the great and terrible day of the Lord. And so some will latch onto that and say, aha, here you have something that is a precursor to the day of the Lord. And they would say that this precursor must happen before the broad day of the Lord. What I'm going to lay out the case is that this precursor is something that happens prior to this narrow day of the Lord. But as I say that, remember Malachi 4 Verses 5 through 6 were applied by Jesus to John the Baptist all the way at Christ's first advent. So what we're going to wrestle with is I'm going to show you that I believe there's a multiple fulfillment, a double fulfillment of the coming of Elijah. He comes in the first advent 
to prepare the way of the Messiah. He comes at the second advent, particularly at the midpoint, to prepare the second coming of the Messiah. Okay, so that's what I want to lay out for you. But this phrase, notice the phrase, great and terrible day of Yahweh. I remember reading this in Hebrew. I was learning Hebrew at uh, Northwestern College. Whoops, was that a... That's the alarm. Oh, it's the alarm going off. I got you. So, oh, I see. We, um, for those who are listening online, we have an alarm system that goes off and someone opens the front door. So that's what we were all wondering what was going on. We thought maybe someone's phone was going off. We weren't sure. But uh, when I was reading Hebrew, what I realized is that this phrase, great and terrible day of Yahweh, only occurs twice in our Bibles. It occurs here in Malachi 4.5 and again in Joel. And I think Malachi is borrowing it from Joel, and I'll show you why that's significant in just a moment. Because that phrase is only used twice, I think the biblical writers are very specific as to what time period it's referring to. Now, notice the great promise, though. Let's return back to Malachi 4.6. Notice this Elijah, what is he going to do as he comes before the great and terrible day of Yahweh, which I'm saying is at the very end of the 70th week. It's synonymous with the, day, the, the battle of Armageddon. Well, notice it says in verse 6, he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of their children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Now, that itself is a difficult saying because why would God put a curse upon the land and specifically link that to the mistreatment of fathers by sons and the sons of, by fathers, etc. Well, what I think is being referred to here is not just talking about regular familial relationships between fathers and sons, although that's possible, but more than likely, in light of Malachi 2.10, and just jot that down, you can read that yourself tonight, the idea of sin that occurred in Judah was an idea of which they had departed from the covenants of the fathers, the patriarchs. In other words, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So all Israelites are regarded as sons and daughters who have departed from the covenants of the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So the promise in verse 6 is that the work of Elijah is going to turn the hearts of Israel once again back to the covenants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, how was Abraham saved? Was the Mosaic covenant pro- 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 Uh, prevalent there? No, it wasn't. It wasn't even on the scene of history. It was through faith alone. Okay, so coming back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and to the promises of the fathers means they're going to be restored to faith. That's the great, great plan of God. Okay, so let's talk about Elijah then. When does Elijah come? Well, he certainly comes in the form of John the Baptist in Jesus' first advent. So let's put our time marker here. Now, the question is going to be, is that the only time he's expected to come? Well, turn your Bibles to Matthew 17, verses 10 through 12, and I'll try to lay out the case that, no, I think Elijah comes, certainly we know in the form of John the Baptist, but I think a case is that he's coming again as well. And that's something we learned as we read Revelation chapter 11 in our studies. So let's turn our Bibles to Matthew 17, verses 10 through 12. And remember, this is right after the Mount of Transfiguration. Who was on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus? Moses and Elijah. Now, isn't it interesting, why would Moses and Elijah be there? Well, because 
God often establishes things by two or three witnesses. So you had the witness of the law, Moses, and the witness of the prophets, which would be represented by Elijah, as to the truth that Jesus alone is the mediator in the Messiah to come. He is the beloved son that we must listen to. Okay. Now what's interesting is I laid out the case when we get to Revelation 11. Remember the last half of the tribulation period? I think Moses and Elijah show up again. And they're again eyewitnesses prior to the second advent. Okay, so let's, oh, I'm sorry, Eric's got something. Yeah, and we'll, we'll read the text. This is just kind of related to what you were saying about yeah. prophecy. And is this a question? I've heard this, and I don't know if it's valid. I've heard about the concept of uh, prophecy being a near-term fulfillment or a partial fulfillment and then a, a later-time fulfillment. And I think you alluded to that in your earlier comments. That is a valid uh, a way of interpreting prophecy, I think, isn't it? Absolutely, Eric. A lot of times we see a near and a far. There's a near-term fulfillment, especially in the times of the Old Testament. One example that always comes to my mind is Isaiah 13, where God promises a far-term judgment in the future day of the Lord that's still future to us. But the guarantee or the evidence that he's good for it is the fact that he will judge the Babylon in Israel's day of course, by the hands of the Medo-Persians, which he does. And so, yes, there's a near and a far aspect of the day of the Lord. I think we see that in Joel. This locust judgment is a near foreshadowing of the day of the Lord, but it's really foreshadowing the darkness that will occur in the ultimate day of the Lord. So this near and the far is often uh, present with us. Bob had us read, remember from Isaiah 61 last week? Jesus in his hometown synagogue, Nazareth, Luke chapter 4, reads from Isaiah 61 that Yahweh has anointed him to preach good news to the captives. He brings and proclaims liberty to those who are in sin, but he leaves off that one verse, the vengeance of the, of the Lord, which occurs at the second advent. So one passage, and you have two advents within that one passage, a near and a far. So you're exactly right, Eric. That is a uh, certainly a valid hermeneutic. And I think that's what we see here. Yes, Bob. Would Second uh, Samuel 7 yeah. fit into that? That's another well? good one, yes. Because it's talking about seemingly Solomon. Right. But then when you keep reading, uh, David himself actually says... Distant future. You're also talking to your servant about the distant future. Absolutely. So you have the near and the far. I've heard it called a double reference prophecy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's very good, Bob. Yeah, um, that's a good second. So Second Samuel 7, you have the Davidic covenant. And we know that, yes, obviously God is speaking of all of the sons of David. He's speaking of certainly Solomon and all of the sons that would proceed from him. But David makes sure that we understand in that prophecy that the ultimate reference is to the Messiah because he talks about the distant future. So there's a near and a far, a double reference there as well. So, yeah, well said. Now, let's read Matthew 17, 10 through 12. So right after the Mount of Transfiguration, the disciples are asking about Elijah. Notice they say, they asked him, when do the scribes say, or excuse me, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Now, this is Jesus' answer. Verse 11, it says, He answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. Now stop there for just a moment. Notice the verb will restore. It's a future active indicative of apokathistami. Now that term simply means to make stand or to restore is a good way of putting it. 
But the fact that it's a future verb indicates that Jesus expects this, I believe, still in the future as well. So the idea here is that he's not denying that this won't occur in the future, but he's saying that there is a fulfillment in the near term in John the Baptist, which he says in the very next verse. He says, but I say to you, and by the way, stop there for a moment. Notice the but. If you had a strong contrastive conjunction, which we don't have here, you would expect Jesus saying, well, this was a misconception. You thought it was going to be here, but, but he's actually using more of an, um, it's day, which is more of a connective. Okay, so notice he's saying, he could literally say, and I say to you that Elijah already came. So not just but. He could say, and I say to you that Elijah already came and they did not recognize him. This is Matthew 17, 12. But did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. So notice Jesus here affirms this. John the Baptist comes in the spirit of Elijah. In fact, he says that very thing in Luke 1, 17. He says it again in Matthew eleven fourteen. So John the Baptist comes in the spirit of Elijah who prepares the way straight for the Lord. Now, remember in Isaiah, I believe it's Isaiah 42, there was a promise where the prophet that would come would prepare the way straight for the Lord. In antiquity, what it's borrowing from, I believe, is when an emissary or a king would travel to a foreign land. Remember, they didn't have modern day roads like you and I have. They don't have the orange barrels out every 4th of July weekend. My grandpa thought that was a conspiracy. He thought that uh, every 4th of July, they just deliberately held off uh, any road construction until then. And then they put out their barrels so that you couldn't get to your cabin. That was the, the conspiracy that he thought. But nonetheless, we have better roads than they did back then. But the idea is if a dignitary is coming to your land, you would prepare the way straight for him. You would smooth out the roads the best you can as a sign of this coming one's dignity. In the same way, then, the coming of the Messiah, he's the greatest king ever. And so John the Baptist's role is to smooth the way straight by preaching repentance. Why? Because people need to know that they're broken. And so the way that they smooth out the road, it's not a literal road, it's a metaphor for taking people's hearts and making them know that they are sinners needing a Savior. That would be the preparing way straight for the Lord. So that's exactly what John the Baptist does, and Jesus affirms that. However, I think we see evidence in this text in Matthew 17 that Jesus does not deny a future coming of Elijah. Does that make sense? Now, does somebody have access? I know you all have your Bibles, but could somebody read Revelation 11? And let's read verses 3 through 13. We're going to read that together because what I want to do now is show you that an Elijah-like figure comes on the scene of history at the midpoint where you have these two witnesses. So does everyone see on the screen at the midpoint of the tribulation, you have a Moses and Elijah that show up and they prophesy for the last three and a half years until the great and terrible day of the Lord, the battle of Armageddon. Um, okay, Brian. Brian has that. So this is Revelation eleven three through 13. Now we're looking at this future coming of Elijah. So yes, Elijah came in John the Baptist, but he's coming again. Go ahead, Brian. Do you want all that read? Three through three? Yeah, probably. <laughs> and I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Okay, stop right there. So let's just make sure everyone sees where this is. 1,260 days, that's three and a half years. That's the last three and a half years. 
Well, what happens at the end of that time period? You have the great and terrible day of Yahweh. So do you see then why it's significant that Malachi says that Elijah comes before the great and terrible day of Yahweh? Okay, so it's not just that he comes here before the broad day, but he comes again before the great and terrible day. That's the way I think we should conceive of it. So keep reading, Brian. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire flows out of their mouth and devours their enemies. So if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. These have the power to shut up the sky so that rain will not fall. Stop right there. That's perfect. Stop right there. I'm sorry. So what does that remind you of the shutting up of the skies? That's what Elijah did in 1 Kings 17. So what the biblical writer John is doing is he's showing you one of the witnesses does exactly what Elijah did. Exactly. It's a, it's a, it's a direct allusion to 1 Kings 17. That's what Elijah does. Now, what did Moses do? Well, he struck the land with plagues. Keep reading. You're going to see that the other witness does what Moses did. The days of their prophesying, and they will have power over the waters to turn them into blood. Moses. And to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. Moses. When they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss. Antichrist. Will make war (laughs) with them and overcome them and kill them. Yes. (laughs) I'm sorry. uh, And their dead bodies spill in the street of the great city, which mystically is called Saddam in Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. Yeah, so we know that's Jerusalem. Amen. That's, that's good enough right there, Brian. And then they're raised from the dead. So think of it this way. Bob and I often talk about the Mount of Transfiguration and how significant that was. This is the announcement. The two eyewitnesses, Moses and Elijah, are there announcing that Jesus is the one that must be listened to. That's at the first advent. Well, isn't it interesting? Moses and Elijah come here prior to his second advent, that is to the establishment of the kingdom of Israel at the end of the 70th week. Okay, so what I'm showing you is that there is this reference to Elijah, certainly, that happens in the last three and a half years prior to this great and terrible day of Yahweh. Now, the last thing that we have to answer, I think, is do we really know that the great and terrible day of Yahweh was considered this last day of the 70th week of Daniel? Okay, am I just reading into that because I want it to be different than the broad day of the Lord. Well, let me lay that case out. As Malachi talked about the great and terrible day of Yahweh, remember that phrase only occurs twice in the Bible. Malachi 4.5 in Joel 2.31. Malachi is a 5th century prophet. Joel, and as I'll, I'll be teaching that book uh, soon in the Sunday school, but I'll lay out the timing and the dating But that's a 7th century prophet. I believe he was pre-exilic. So certainly I think Malachi is borrowing that phrase, the great and terrible day of Yahweh, from Joel. Okay, of course, inspired by the the Holy Spirit to do so. So let me show you why that's significant. Let's turn our books to, our Bibles to Joel 2.28 through 31. Joel 2.28 through 31. Now, I can't emphasize enough how important this text is because Peter quotes from it at Pentecost, as, as Bob showed us. And so this is an exceedingly important text that not only talks about the ushering in of the new covenant, which is inaugurated by the sending of Christ and the sending of the Spirit, 
But it also has to do with the great and terrible day of the Lord, which happens, as I think, at the end of the 70th week of Daniel. Let me lay this out. Joel 2, 28 through 31. Joel says, It will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind. Now, let me just stop there for a moment. What's interesting right there is Peter applies this at Pentecost. He uses the Greek phrase, in the last days. So he does that deliberately to show you that this isn't just something that's going to be, well, sometime later, but it's specifically a reference to the last days. For Peter, for Paul, the apostles, and Christ, the essence of the last days is the sending of the Spirit. Now, who sent the Spirit? Well, Jesus did. Jesus is the one who sends the Spirit, and the metaphor that's often used is that of water. In these last days, he'd be poured out. So that's what's being referred to here. So it's literally the last days as applied by the Apostle Peter. So he's going to pour out my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions. Notice verse 29, even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Now stop there. As we read Joel 2, 28 through 29 thus far, There is a promise that is being fulfilled that comes earlier in the Old Testament. That comes from Numbers chapter 11. Do you remember Numbers chapter 11? God sent the Spirit upon not only Moses, but the 70 elders of Israel. You can read about this in Numbers 11, 24 through 29. Remember the Spirit came upon the 70 elders, and they all go to the tent of meeting except two. Somehow these two elders of Israel, they didn't get the memo. Okay, so they're caught prophesying amongst the people outside of the tent of meeting. Well, Joshua is just beside himself. He can't believe that, because this is a threat against Moses who uniquely speaks for God. So Joshua becomes irate and says to Moses, you have to quench these guys. You speak alone, I'm paraphrasing. But you remember what Moses says? He says, oh, that God would enable all of the people to prophesy, that he would send the Spirit upon all of God's people. So the great promise that Moses alludes to there is one day in the New Covenant, God's Spirit isn't just upon the 70 elders of Israel or just upon Moses, but the Holy Spirit is going to be sent upon all of God's people. Every one of us can know the Lord, whether you're male or female, whether you're Jew or Gentile. That's the great promise. And so this is a promise that was fulfilled all the way from Moses' prayer in Numbers chapter 11. And so that's how we have to conceive of it. Okay, now keep reading here in verse 30. Notice it says, I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. Notice verse 31. It says the sun will be darkened, excuse me, turned into darkness, and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Okay, now, as Peter cites this text, he applies this at Pentecost. However, the last portion of it is ultimately applied at the end of Daniel's 70th week. And as I'll, in the next slide, I'm going to have you turn to Matthew. You'll see that this reference to the moon turning into blood and the sun turning into darkness is what happens after, according to Matthew 24, 29, the tribulation of those days. So it's referring to this time period. Okay? Now, the one thing that tips us off that Joel also has in mind 
This same time period is what comes after. And that is in Joel chapter 3, Joel specifically talks about this battle that comes, that surrounds Jerusalem, in which God himself will intervene. That is the battle of Armageddon that Jesus is referring to in Matthew 24, 29. It's the one that's talked about in Revelation, from Revelation chapter 16 all the way through 19. It is the final battle, the coup de grace, as my brother would say, the coup de grace. Or the coup, yeah, I think that's how he says it. I can't even say it wrong. <laughs> coup de grace, that's how he would say it. It's the worst ever. All the nations are going to gather around Jerusalem and Messiah is going to intervene. Now, let's see that, that that is the context of when the sun will be darkened and the moon turned into blood. Let's turn our Bibles to Joel 3 and do some more reading because I want you to see that this battle that Joel has in mind is the final battle in which Messiah himself returns and fights against the nations that surround Jerusalem. Notice in verse 3, excuse me, chapter 3 of verse 1 of Joel. Please turn your Bibles there, Joel 3, 1. It says, For behold, in those days and at that time, so now this is referring us back to Joel 2. I'm sorry, go ahead, Paul. Uh, when it says that uh, men will, uh, was it, your, your old men will dream dreams and young men will see visions, and it goes on. Now, we've been very skeptical in this church about dreams and visions and that sort of thing. Sure. Uh, in this case, is it either one or two things, either it's mentioned here somewhat positively, or is it this the uh, God creating the deception for unbelievers? No, you know... Um, Oh, yeah, go ahead, Bob. Can I yeah. answer that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the point of that is the priesthood of every believer, I believe. Uh, that's yeah, what amen. Luther pointed out. In other words, all who are born of God have the Spirit, and all can speak the dreaming dreams and what have you in the Old Testament were associated with the prophets who would speak for God. So... All under the new covenant have the spirit. The foundation, we're talking about that in Ephesians, laid once for all, Christ and his apostles and prophets. But all believers can speak forth the truth of the gospel and the, the details of the new covenant. And we're not just dependent on when Luther applied this during the Reformation, the priesthood of every believer, and he cited a lot of these passages. In other words, you didn't have to sit there and say, well, some cardinal with a red pointy hat said it. <laughs> uh, right, amen. And so exactly. the one who has the Spirit, it doesn't mean giving new revelations. It means speaking forth the truth amen. of the new covenant. Amen. which is the gospel of Christ. Amen. And so we see um, as the new covenant breaks forth, you have prophets. Remember even in the book of Acts, you have Agabus, who's a prophet. And he has a vision, doesn't he? He knows when the, the famine is going to come. We have the prophets. Remember the apostles and prophets in the new covenant. Ephesians 2.20 are the foundation for the entire church. We know that there's women prophetesses in the book of Acts. Yeah. So we know that there are dreams and visions that occur during the apostolic age upon the apostles and prophets. Agabus is a real prophet who really gives us a revelation that something that God had revealed to him that was, in fact, authoritatively from God. However, as Bob is pointing out, all Christians, even after the apostolic age, have the right to prophesy 
by giving implications, understandings, and applications of Scripture. And we see that, for example, in 1 Corinthians 14.30. If you turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 14, that's where he says, you may all prophesy, I believe, if I'm remembering my verse right. Yeah, there you, it's uh, 1 Corinthians 14.30. If everyone turns their Bibles there. Notice it says, If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. I'm sorry, it's actually in verse 31. So here's order. You see that there's order. People can't just prophesy in mass in the church. It has to be one by one. But notice in verse 31 it says, For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. Now, notice this phrase for that you can all prophesy one by one. That all there is not a reference to just all the prophets. It's to all believers. How do we know that? Because in context, Paul says, so that all may be edified. Are we saying only the prophets can be edified? Well, no. So all is every single Christian. As Bob laid out in the, um, what article was it, Bob? What was the title of it? You actually talk about Revelation... It's a CIC article that gives you more data than I can give you here. Um, I wrote several. One of them was about the priesthood of every believer. The priesthood, that may be a good one. But if you put in, there's one on Revelation where you deal with how Revelation can yeah, be used sure in a... Revelation doesn't mean something nobody ever heard of before. And you, in, right, and you'll yeah. talk about that in Ephesians too. But there's a, so if you put in Revelation and put in CI, critical issues commentary, that article will come up where Bob will clarify how it is that you can have revelation that isn't new dreams, new visions, but revelation in keeping with that which is revealed in the Word of God. And that's exactly what's going yeah. on here in 1 Corinthians 14 30. Oh, here sorry. I am transgressing the <laughs> rule of order. Turn to my. Sure. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that, I did a. The reason for all those articles yeah. was that somebody was always challenging. What right. we are saying, right? Because there are so many apostles and prophets running around out there. Yes. The New Apostolic Reformation, the Latter Rain Movement, IHOP. Uh, yeah. Not the Pancake Place. Yeah. Uh, there's all kinds of them. There's one out in Reading. Yeah. They're all claiming that they're giving new revelations from God. And what I did was I pointed out that the term has a range of meaning Amen. that you have to determine. By the context. Amen. Now, I, I'll be dealing with some of this today and next week and the week after in Ephesians 3. The term revelation, when Paul's using it about himself, is concerning the one new man, Amen. Ephesians 2.15. That God intended that the new covenant prophesied in Jeremiah would contain both Jews and Gentiles that believe and have the same status, and both have the Holy Spirit. Amen. And so that's the foundation. But later, as the building goes up, um, the term revelation is used in a different way, uh, not as a new uh, revelation never before known by the sons of men, but by the implication and application of Scripture. And that's exactly what we do right here. Uh, amen. If you have a really good one, you get free coffee. <laughs> That's but right. The point That's is, right. it's a reading of what's already been said that now we see 
oh, that applies to this. And if it's correct, it is binding because it's Amen. implications and applications are logically connected to the text. And if they're understood in a right way, they are actually binding. Amen. Exactly right. Because who gave us the text? The Spirit. The Spirit was poured out, gives us the Bible. We understand it. We're hearing from the Spirit. Yes, Christy. Um, I looked up the critical issues commentary. Is it the one that's titled, There Are No New Revelations? Yes. Issue 121. Does that sound right? 121. Okay. <laughs> yeah, issue 121. That, I think that is it. That, that sounds good. Um, oh, so here, to get back to, uh, was it Paul that you asked the question? The way I would understand this Joel, the idea that the sons and daughters would dream and see dreams and the old men would see visions, etc. I would see that fulfilled in the new covenant in the sense that it's not just limited now, these dreams and visions to Moses, but now it comes upon Agapus, it comes upon the prophets and the apostles, and it comes upon, for example, the prophetesses that you'll see. But that time period is limited. That's the foundation that God lays under the new covenant. Ephesians 2.20, the church has been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. The aorist active indicative verb has, or I think it's passive, has been built, indicates that this is a foundation that's laid once and for all. That's why Jude, remember in Jude 3, we're to contend for the faith once and for all handed down to the saints. It's not continuously morphing or changing. So now, the idea of prophesying, we don't see dreams and visions in an authoritative sense, but we prophesy, as Paul alluded to in 1 Corinthians 14, as Bob is talking about, by understanding the implications and applications of Scripture. But that's the fulfillment of it, and the breaking forth of the new covenant is the sending of the Spirit. The sending of the Spirit is what they call the, the essential ingredient, the sine qua non. Yeah, thank you. The Latin phrase for the essential ingredient without which you don't have it. It is the essential yes. ingredient of the new covenant. Yeah, Bob. And I wanted to also point out, uh, these articles arose from real questions and issues happening in real churches. Yeah. Okay? Including things I went through. Now, what Eric's talking about, people that want to say that whatever's in Acts should be normative always. Right. There's no once for all eight foundation. It's always going to be that way. Yeah. It's always going to be apostles, prophets, and whatever, and prophetesses. Uh, let me give you an example. My, the, my memory, thank you for all your prayers. My health is so... So much better, I, I never thought I would see the day that I feel this good. And my mind, my memory's coming back. In Amen. the 70s, there was a prophetess by the name of Roxanne Brandt hmm. who claimed to give new revelations from God and claimed that God told her that Florida was going to go under the ocean. <laughs> and this was before Al Gore, by the way. <laughs> and... Uh, she started a group of people because she was a charismatic, you know, sense of captivating speaker and got a lot of followers. And she bought some property on high ground and convinced people to sell their houses and move with her to the high ground of Florida and buy property. And they had a group that was going to write out the judgment of Florida was going to go under the mostly under the sea, other than the high ground. Right. That was in the seventies. Wow. But see, 
the, I've been anathematized by these apostles and prophets that are around now. Right. And I've been told literally I'm going to hell. Wow. Because I'm quenching the Holy Spirit by questioning anything. Wow. See, they never own what fails. They never do. Right. Oh, they didn't quite get it right. Yeah, but what about all those people who lost all their money? Yeah. What about all those people whose families were destroyed? What about all those people that this happened to and that happened to? Oh, well, Rex on Brent was just trying and she was learning, but didn't quite get it right. But the next one's going to get it. Right. Okay? And so we keep seeing people destroyed because they follow after these wicked false prophets. And whoever challenges them are anathematized and told they're going to hell. So you have, if you're not a strong person that can stand up to it, You'll get just beat down and full of fear and guilt, thinking, I'm quenching the Holy Spirit, I'm fighting God, and all these terrible things are going to happen. And we're trying to help you get the biblical categories so that you're not silenced. You can't speak forth. We do believe the priesthood of every believer, but you're not going to be captivated because how do you judge that? God, yea, thus saith the Lord, Florida's going underwater. Right. The low ground. Well, how do you say, no, I don't think so? Well, how do you know it? Nobody knows the future but God. So it's not judgeable. So you just assume, well, this lady is uh, powerful. I think she must be right. I'm going to go buy ground. I'm going to go buy land from her and live in this high ground in Florida. Well, then when it never happens, how, how long do you wait before you decide it never happened? Right, right. Well, we got Al Gore. Yeah. You know, part of New York is supposed to be underwater right now. Oh, it's going to happen <laughs> next time. Don't listen to anybody who thinks they know the future beyond what the Bible prophesied. Amen. They are wrong, and they're wrong 100% of the time. Amen. Why they don't get lucky and be right once, right. I don't know, but they're always wrong. <laughs> That's right. Try That's Y2K. Yeah. Yeah, right. Absolutely. Uh, Eric, I'm sorry. Uh, Craig, go ahead. I just wanted to bring up a point, kind of reinforcing what you're talking about. Yeah. In 1 Corinthians 14, the very next verse, verse 32, it says, And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. Yeah. So I think that's talking about, you know, these, we need to be, it needs to be consistent with what Scripture says. Yeah, amen. Well said. Very sad. And And if you uh, read that article 121, we're, we're seeing that the prophet here is used in the functional sense not in the office sense. The one, it's just shorthand for the one who prophesies. In fact, a lot of times participles, so when we're English readers, we don't oftentimes read the participles. It's, a lot of times it'll say the one who prophesies. Uh, remember the one who comes in the name of Yahweh? That's a participle. Remember John the Baptist, are you the one who comes? Literally, are you the coming one? Okay, so there's participles that are often rendered differently in English. And, so anyway, my point is that's functional language, not the office of prophet, but simply the one who prophesies implications, applications of scripture. So again, Joel is clear. Yes, there'll be dreams and visions that's fulfilled in the first century at the apostolic age that happened to men and women that absolutely was fulfilled. Literally. We're not, Bob and I aren't saying, well, this is figuratively fulfilled through understanding scripture. We're saying this literally was fulfilled, but that apostolic age, we no longer need it. Why? Because now we have scripture. The scriptures on the scene of history now the prophesying is the implications and applications of Scripture, just as Paul laid out for us in 1 Corinthians 14. And that's how we have the priesthood of every believer. Okay, so now, I'm sorry, we better get back to Joel. 
And, but this is a very good detour, and thanks for bringing that up, uh, whoever did that. I think it was Paul. Yeah, <laughs> very good. Now here I want to do is I want to connect the timing of this blood, the, the moon looking like blood and the sun not being uh, or not giving its light. I want to tie that to the last battle that occurs at the end of the 70th week. So here in Joel 3, verse 1, notice it says before, For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, notice verse 2, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people, my heritage Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land. So let's just stop there. Notice in verse 2, he's going to bring this battle to the valley of Jehoshaphat as the nations surround Jerusalem. Now, Jehoshaphat literally is Yahweh Shophet in Hebrew. Shophet is judge. Yahweh, of course, is the name, the covenant name for God. And so it literally means the place where God stands as the judge. Now, I always think it's very interesting. This judgment comes upon the nations as they come against Jerusalem, by and large, because they've rejected Jesus. Jesus' name, Yeshua, means Yahweh is salvation. So isn't it ironic that because the world rejected Yahweh as salvation, Jesus, they get to be brought to the place that says Yahweh is judge? Are you with me? So all the nations that hate Jesus as Savior, Yahweh as salvation, Yeshua, are brought to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and that's where God is going to judge them there. Verse 3, it says, or excuse me, verse 4, he says, What are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon? And all the regions of Philistia, are you paying me back for something? If you are paying me back, I will return your payment on your own head swiftly and speedily. Now, why is he using Tyre and Sidon? Because in the day that Joel was prophesying, they were the prototypical enemies of God. They're the ones who threatened Jerusalem and Israel. So they stand then as a summary of all those who are at the end going to threaten Israel and Jerusalem. You see, the nation's boundaries may change in the names of the nations, but the same issue is at play. The nations who hate God want to wipe his people out. That's what's consistent between the near and the far. Now, let's go to uh, verse 6. You have sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their own border. Behold, I will stir them up from the place to which you have sold them, and I will return your payment on your head. I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the people of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabaeans, to a nation far away, for the Lord has spoken. So notice here in verse 9, it says, Proclaim this among the nations, consecrate for war. Stir up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I'm a warrior. So do you notice this is the opposite of the promise in Isaiah that when Messiah reigns, the swords will be beat into plowshares and the spears into pruning hooks. This is the opposite. God is saying, no, why don't you all become warriors and come against me at Jerusalem to these pagans who hate him and his people? So that's the invitation, and this is one that they will come. Now notice verse 11. It says, Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Yahweh. Let the nations stir themselves up 
and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Now, where is the valley of Jehoshaphat? I think the best evidence is this is the Kidron Valley. The Kidron Valley that surrounds Jerusalem, or on one side of Jerusalem, this is the valley of Jehoshaphat. And it, in fact, is going to be the place where the nations all surround Jerusalem. But here is going to be this unique day where Yahweh, as he brings all the nations, he's going to defeat them. This is the same day as we read in Zechariah 14 that Yahweh's feet, interestingly the term used is feet, will sit on the Mount of Olives. Now, in Zechariah's day, perhaps some Jews were confused because they would say, well, God doesn't literally have feet, but the God-man does. So as the Messiah sets his feet on the Mount of Olives at the end of the 70th week, again, we're talking about this time period right here, he is going to be the one who intercedes and defeats all the enemies that surround Jerusalem. So we'll just keep reading a little bit more. It says in verse 13, put in the sickle for the harvest is ripe. Uh, That reminds us of Isaiah 63, where this Messiah is filled with the blood of his enemies. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Notice now verse 14, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, the same as the valley of Jehoshaphat, for the day of Yahweh is near. Now here, near means it is at hand. It is right here. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. Now, stop there for just a moment. Notice in verse 15, that's all the further we'll read. Notice the sun and moon is darkened. Well, that's exactly what Joel 2.31 says. It says, Joel 2.31, the sun will be darkened and the moon will be turned into blood. That's exactly what Jesus says in Matthew 24.29 when he says, after the tribulation of those days, what days? The 70th week. The sun will be darkened and the moon will turn into blood. So Joel chapter 3, Joel chapter 2, and Jesus and Matthew 24, 29 are all talking about the sun, moon, and stars as being affected. That occurs in what's called the great and terrible day of Yahweh. That happens at the end of the 70th week. So, are there signs that precede that? Yes, the sun, moon, and stars are darkened, and Elijah comes with Moses for the last three and a half years. So those are precursors to the narrow day of the Lord. But notice there's nothing to tip us off as to when the broad day of the Lord will occur. Now, I'm turning, by the way, I added a slide, but it's the same stuff that I have on here. I just added a verse to it. Let me show you where we have something very similar. Now, the context here of Zechariah 14, as I put it up on the screen, notice Zechariah 14 is this day in which the Messiah puts his feet on the Mount of Olives. You can read about that in Zechariah 14, 1 through 5. Now, the reason I'm putting this up on the screen, it's the same day that's being alluded to that we just read in Joel 3. The same one that Jesus is talking about in Matthew 24, 29. This is the battle. It's the battle of Armageddon that begins in Revelation 16, at the midpoint of 16, all the way through chapter 19 of Revelation. So notice here, Zechariah 14, Messiah has come, if you read verses 1 through 5, and he's come to judge the nations that surround Jerusalem. So notice it says in Zechariah 14, 6 through 7, in that day there will be no light, the luminaries will dwindle, for it will be a unique day, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but it will come about that at evening time there will be light. Now, the reason this is an exceedingly important verse is when we think about the phrase, the great and terrible day of Yahweh, 
And I'm saying that that is a unique day. Here we have confirmation of that in Zechariah 14.7. Notice in red it says, for it will be a unique day. Literally the term unique is one. It's the ordinal number for one in Hebrew. Uh, a calf is one in Hebrew. But a calf can also be rendered unique. In fact, it's used four times in our Old Testament for unique. Um, it's used in the Song of Solomon for Solomon talking about his unique loved one. It's talking about Yahweh being the unique God in Ezekiel. So sometimes one doesn't just mean the number one, it means unique. I think that's precisely how it should be rendered here as the New American Standard Bible has rendered it. It is a unique day. Why? Because it'll come about that at evening time there will be light. This is a unique day where there's cosmic upheaval. By the way, the light that comes is from the Messiah because the sun will be darkened and the moon will be turned to blood. In fact, notice it says the luminaries will dwindle. Literally in the Hebrew, it talks about how the great ones will congeal. Now, some of your versions, if you have like an NIV Bible, and don't just throw your NIV Bible, this is just one area where they drop it, but the NIV, if you have that, it'll talk about uh, things turning cold, and I think it talks about clay and different things like that. But the, the, here's the problem. The, the idea is the, the NIV translators were wrestling with, well, how can lights congeal? They, so they were wrestling with clay. The problem with saying clay or however they render it is that notice it says there will be no light. So the imagery in the Hebrew mind was, well, how can there be no light? Well, there's going to be a congealing of the heavenly bodies. That's what's in their mind. So the idea of something earthly like clay or brick or what have you doesn't fit well in the context. The great ones refers to the shining glories of the heavenly bodies. And the idea that they congeal simply means they won't give their light. That's exactly what Jesus says will occur at the end of the 70th week of Daniel. Again, notice in the circle, let me put this up here again. Oops. I'm losing control of my own. Here, the circle right here. lost all control of my own PowerPoint. That's what he's referring to. Okay, now, let me make the connection then for you. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Matthew 24, because we want to see that this is exactly what Jesus is referring to at the end of the 70th week. So we're not just reading into this idea, the great and terrible day of Yahweh, because we want to make it fit our system. No, that phrase only used twice is referring to this unique day in which the illuminaries in heaven will dwindle. Notice Jesus says in Matthew 24, 29 through 31, very important phrase. Notice he says, but immediately after the tribulation of those days. Now stop there. Why is immediately important? Because it shows us there's going to be no intervening time period. In other words, immediately after the tribulation of those days. Now, what days did he refer to? The tribulation here, let's ask ourselves, go to the diagram. Is he referring to the tribulation of the church age? No, he's referring to the tribulation period of the 70th week. How do we know that? Well, for example, in Matthew 24, 15, he says, so when you see the abomination that causes desolation, those who are in Judea are to flee to the mountains. Well, when does that happen? That's at the midpoint of Daniel's 70th week. So all of the signs, as Bob and I have laid out in the Olivet Discourse, are things within the 70th week. So by the time Jesus gets to Matthew 24, 29, he expects you to know when he says the tribulation of those days, he's referring to the entirety of the 70th week. Notice what happens after that. The sun will be darkened. 
and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of heaven will be shaken. Notice verse 30. It says, and then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. So here's now the Son of Man coming back with his church to set up his kingdom in Jerusalem that will extend over the whole earth, be headquartered in Israel. It says, when the, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky. Remember, that's an allusion to Daniel 7. Daniel 7 talks about the Son of Man. He's going to be given the kingdom that lasts forever. That's what it's alluding to. He comes with power and great glory. Now, notice verse 31. It says, And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. That is not a reference to the rapture. Now, how do we know that? Because notice the phrase great trumpet. Does everyone see that in verse 31? Great trumpet that phrase, gadol shofar, shofar is a horn. You've all heard of a shofar that's blown. Gadol means great or sometimes mighty. So that phrase only occurs once in the entire Old Testament where you have great and trumpet put together. That's Isaiah 27.13. And the great promise in Isaiah 27.13 is not the rapture. That's actually in Isaiah 26. Do you know that Isaiah is chronological with the eschatolog eschatological events? In Isaiah 27, 13, it's talking about the ingathering of all the Israelites who had been dispossessed of the land. They're going to be brought into the kingdom. That's the great promise. So God is literally being faithful to his promises that all of the Israelites are going to be brought back into the land supernaturally by this second advent at the end of the 70th week of Daniel. Okay? So does that make sense? So the great and terrible day, here's the point. There are signs before the narrow day of the Lord. You have the two witnesses. You have the sun, moon, and stars being darkened right at the end. And then you have the time where Jesus intervenes at the very end. But prior to the broad day of the Lord, the beginning of the 70th week, there's no signs. So why is that important? Because if you say, I believe the rapture is a signless event, and I believe the day of the Lord can break forth at any time, there will be someone who will say, well, yeah, but doesn't it say that the sun, moon, and stars are to be darkened before the great and terrible day of Yahweh? Doesn't it say that Elijah is supposed to come before the great and terrible day of Yahweh? Well, once you know that the great and terrible day of Yahweh is a specific 24-hour period that's a unique day, as said in Zechariah 14, the day that the Messiah actually returns in battle, and that it's not the beginning of the broad day of the Lord, now you can make these distinctions that I think the Bible itself makes. That's why it's so helpful. Okay, now is that clear? I know I threw a lot at you in a short period of time. If you have any questions, comments, pushback, uh, feel free to let me have it. But that's, that's the best reading, I think, of the text. Um, and I'm sorry, you know what, I guess we're out of time. I um, would love to get, trust me, we will finish this up, and I want to get, we're going to be out of the book of Revelation very soon, and the, Bob and I are going to be doing systematic theology together in here with you on some very important, we think, theological issues. And then after that, I'll be doing the book of Joel verse by verse. So that's where we're going to be heading. So anyway, I wanted to be careful, though, and lay these things out for you to hopefully alleviate confusion and not add to it. So if anyone has any confusion or comments or questions, feel free to see me afterwards. But let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the, the clarity of your scriptures. I pray, Lord, that you would help us not to be in confusion, but realize that you've spoken clearly about the promises to come. We thank you for these promises. They are mighty and grand, that you will one day 
bring salvation for us and bring a glorious kingdom where the, the spears will be beat into plowshares and the spears into pruning hooks and that the, the nations will no longer learn war anymore. And uh, Lord, we thank you for that. And we thank you, Lord, that Jesus is coming to rescue us from our enemies and to bring us into this glorious kingdom that you've promised and foretold long ago. We thank you for these things. I thank you for my brothers and sisters. I thank you for Bob. I pray, Lord, that you would uh, preach through him and help us to understand the book of Ephesians that's coming in the sermon. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.